Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohoko, and Tami Kuza. Now, in our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Protesters in Burundi accuse Rwanda of backing rebels. South Sudan's rebel leader Rick Macha accepts appointment as vice president. And in economics, Egypt Central Bank injects billions of dollars into local banks. And in sports news, Kenyan government steps up its anti-doping fight. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. Representatives from Libya's rival factions meeting in Morocco has proposed a new unity government. A list of 18 proposed ministers has been sent for approval to the International Recognized Parliament in Tobruk. If approved by Libya's internationally recognized parliament, a new unity government could eventually seek international military intervention against ISIS who have taken advantage of the country's political vacuum since 2014. People in the Central African Republic have voted to elect a new president in a runoff contest between two former prime ministers. The two presidential candidates have campaigned on promises of restoring security and unifying the country, which is currently being led by a transitional government. Voters are also choosing a new parliament following the annulment of a poll in December due to irregularities. Thousands of people took to the streets in several cities of Burundi at the weekend to demonstrate against Rwandan President Paul Kagame and his government, accusing them of plotting to destabilize Burundi. Rwanda has been at the receiving end of international criticism for allegedly recruiting training and arming of Burundian refugees. From Bujumbura, Bernard Bankukira reports. These are slogans chanted by thousands of protesters in the capital Bujumbura who took to the streets to condemn what the country's embattled government calls Rwanda's meddling in its internal affairs. Protesters were livid that Kagame and Rwanda have been recruiting and training young refugees with hope of throwing a democratically elected government. 
Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud says Nigeria's Boko Haram militants have been trained in his country before going back to West Africa. Mahmoud, speaking at a security conference in Germany, said militant groups in Africa are associated and African states need to be organized to be able to deal with their threats. He also noted that his country has only made limited progress in setting up a working political system. And finally, the South African National Editors Forum is seeking an urgent meeting with South Africa. Africa's opposition, the EFF's leadership, to discuss the implications of the party's threat to journalists. On February the 4th, EFF leader Julius Malema said journalists working for Gupta-owned media outlets were no longer welcomed at the party's events. Senate Executive Director Matata Tzedu says the meeting with EFF is important. EFF, more than just a week ago, declared war on the Gupta family, then said they were cutting links with everything that relates to the Gupta family. That includes the family's uh, media outlets. That declaration has implications for the journalists who work at those institutions, and it is that which we want to sit down and discuss with the EFF. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. Now, thousands of Burundians on Saturday participated in government-sanctioned demonstrations against neighboring Rwanda, whom it accuses of supporting a rebellion to topple Burundi's president. A demonstration highlight the souring of relations between the Central African neighbors since Burundi's president Pierre Nkurunzinza was re-elected for a disputed third term. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. These are slogans chanted by thousands of protesters in the capital Bujumbura who took to the streets on this Saturday to condemn what the country's embattled government calls Rwanda's meddling in its internal affairs. Protesters were livid that Kagame and Rwanda have been recruiting and training young refugees with hope of overthrowing a democratically elected government. <laughs> Angry demonstrators voiced anti-Kagame songs and waved placards with slogans like, we denounce Kagame and his plans to destabilize Burundi and the whole Great Lakes region. We condemn the support of Rwanda to criminals who want to destabilize Burundi. Oh, we are on fight. Mobilize the troops. Kagame is the enemy who will thrash him. In Bujumbura, from the Independent Square, on their way to the shores of Lake Tanganyika, where the march ended, Demonstrators stopped momentarily in front of the embassy of Rwanda for about 10 minutes, voicing slogans hostile to President Paul Kagame together with his government and singing the national anthem of Burundi before continuing their march. Throughout the whole country, the march ended with the message of the Burundi Home Affairs Minister Pascal Barandagie, in which the Burundian government slammed the Rwandan leader and government 
for shattering the May 13th, 2015 coup plotters. We would like to denounce acts of aggression and outrageous remarks by the Rwandan government and President Paul Kagame, the recruitments, trainings and arming of Burundian refugees to turn them into rebels in order to assassinate the Burundian political leaders and destabilize Burundi institutions elected by the people. In his message to the protesters in the western province of Bubanza, Pascal Nyabenda, speaker of the lower chamber of the parliament, explained to the crowd that the objective is just to bring Rwanda to stop assisting rebels who want to destabilize the country, not hatred against Rwandans. When we denounce the ill-willed plan of Rwanda, it's not hatred against Rwandans, no. It's just because Rwandan leaders have been involved in criminal acts. Those who went there were trained to fight. Those who remained here received weapons from Rwanda, the weapons that are wreaking havoc in the capital Bujumbura. We hope you all heard on radios those who admitted openly that they brought in the weapons from Rwanda. So this is not a rumor. So when we denounce this behavior, we want Rwanda to change its mind because a good neighbor is your brother. On our side, we understand that Rwandans and Burundians, we are all brothers. We also understand that bad governance is the source of conflict. So we want Rwanda to change its mind and understand that we are brothers and neighbors so that they can stop their assistance to Burundian rebels by recruiting, training and arming them. Over the course of the current turmoil in Burundi, relations between the two neighbors have considerably deteriorated, with Burundi repeatedly blaming Rwanda for recruiting and training Burundian refugees and turning them into rebels who want to destabilize its next-door neighbor. The protesters also carried messages thanking the African Union for reconsidering its decision to send peacekeeping troops to Burundi. They also dismissed the idea of the government sitting down to negotiate with some of the people who allegedly took part in last year's attempted coup. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bujumbura. Leader of South Sudan rebel faction Riek Machar has welcomed his appointment as the vice president of the transitional government. Machar says he is ready to go back to South Sudan and run the government alongside President Kier. Koleta Wanjohi has more. The announcement of a presidential decree by South Sudan President Salva Kiir that rebel leader Riek Machar is now officially his first vice president in the transitional government of national unity for South Sudan has come as a surprise to the rebel leader. Riek Machar says that this was unexpected, considering that there are still issues pertaining to constitutional amendments for the formation of the transitional government of national unity, whose deadline of January 2016 already passed. However, the rebel leader Riek Machar has accepted the appointment and says he is ready to go back to Juba and form the transitional government alongside President Salva Kiir. I have no preconditions. I have no demands. I'm asking that... Uh, the adequate security arrangements are made for me to go to Juba and for those who are in the UN protection camps to feel confident that they can come out and be protected. So there are not preconditions. 
The South Sudan Transitional Government of National Unity was delayed by, among other things, demands from the opposition, which is the rebel faction, that President Salva Kiir removes the 18 additional states that he had created that were not part of the peace agreement that was signed in August 2015 by the two warring parties. In now what seems to be softening of his earlier position, rebel leader Riek Mashar says he is willing to work out these differences while in the transitional government. The 28 states... The communique is clear. Once the government is formed, if it were formed tomorrow, the 28 states would be suspended. And within one month, we should, be, we should negotiate and come up with a number of states that are agreed. If we fail, we revert to the 10 in the peace agreement. But I think that is a clear roadmap. The rebel faction already sent months ago a delegation of 300 people to Juba to make preparation for the return of the bigger team led by the rebel faction leader, Riak Mashar, Kuleton Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. South African President Jacob Zuma says South Africa will continue to play a major role in peacekeeping initiatives across the African continent. The president was speaking to the Ubuntu at the Ubuntu Awards Gala dinner held in Cape Town on Saturday. Tsebwe Kaning was there. President Jacob Zuma started by declaring government support to the three mine workers still trapped at the Lily Mine in Pumalanga. Are in deep pain and feel helpless in such an overwhelming situation. We assure the families that the whole nation is with them and shares their pain. We hope that the results will indeed comfort the family. I've asked three ministers to join the provincial government and the affected company in providing assistance and support to the families. It is a very difficult and painful period and we trust that the rescue mission will yield results sooner. The president has also paid homage to the recipients of the Ubuntu Awards, describing them as men and women of courage. The men and women that have been honored here today are inspirational examples of this. In their various industries, they have truly excelled, thus promoting a positive image of our nation across the globe. South Africa is a beautiful country with wonderful people. It is also a country that participates in many activities that are designed to make Africa and the world a better place. President Zuma has also thanked the Department of International Relations and Cooperation for bestowing the Ubuntu Awards to veteran diplomat Billy Mudise and anti-apartheid stalwart Ruth Mompati. Tsepo Ikanin in Cape Town. Hello listener, join Channel Africa in celebrating its 50th anniversary. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. 
Email your contact to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa PO Box 913103 Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. You can also SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It has been a case of the Immunities Act versus the Rome Statute at South Africa's Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein. This is a contestation the court has to grapple with as it considers whether government breached the constitution when it failed to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. The South African government wants the court to overturn the North Houting High Court ruling that it should have arrested the Sudanese president. The High Court had issued a warrant for al-Bashir's arrest when he was in the country for the AU summit last June. Gonelo Lekafula has more. It's been arguments and counter-arguments at the Supreme Court of Appeal, which have lasted for five hours and submissions came from 18 parties. Director of Helen Sussman Foundation, Francis Anthony. I'm very pleased with the way the progress was made today. I think both Silk and the Helen Sussman Foundation uh, presented very coherent arguments as to why uh, the, the case shouldn't be, uh, have been appealed. Uh, and uh, I'm confident that the judges uh, will take our arguments very seriously. So I'm very pleased with the proceedings today, and we look forward to the judges' rulings. Jason Brickhill, who represented Peace and Justice Initiative based in The Hague and also the Center for the Human Rights from the University of Pretoria, is unshaken in his take that South Africa should have acted within the obligation of being the signatory of the ICC, that is to arrest President Omar al-Bashir. Once such a court has been established, Article 6 obliges uh, the contracting parties which shall have accepted its jurisdiction to cooperate with it, which implies that they will arrest persons arrest accused of genocide who are in their territory, even if the crime of which they are accused was committed outside it, that they will hand them over for trial by the competent international tribunal. Is that South Africa bears an independent obligation, quite apart from the ICC statute, to arrest and hand over President al-Bashir. The government is adamant that the arrest warrant was not enforceable, arguing that al-Bashir was in the country as a delegate and sitting head of state. Justice and Constitutional Development Department spokesperson Mtunzi Maka. President al-Bashir was in the country in his capacity as a delegate and as a sitting head of state and it is unprecedented that you have a government being ordered to arrest a sitting foreign head of state. And therefore it was important for us to have these matters ventilated and determined in this court, which is a full bench. And we are confident that when they return, they would have a, a judgment that overturns the Ela judgment of the Nohauden High Court. Judgment has been reserved. I'm Tabiso Hadebe in Bloemfontein. The appeals chamber of the Hague-based International Criminal Court has ruled that previously recanted recorded statements of five prosecution witnesses cannot be used as evidence in the trial of Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto and former vernacular radio talk show host Joshua Arab Seng. James Shimangula has more. 
The ruling by the International Criminal Court's Appeals Chamber rejecting recanted evidence has automatically strengthened the case against Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto and the journalist Joshua Arapsang. Judge Pio Hofmansky, one of the five judges of the appeals chamber that read the ruling at The Hague in the Netherlands, pointed out that the court trying Ruto and Sang should have taken into consideration the fact that a section of the law on recanted evidence had been amended and would not render recanted evidence as admissible. In applying the amended rule, the trial chamber committed legal errors. The appeals chamber finds that the application of this rule affected negatively the overall position of Mr. Zang and Mr. Ruto. Accordingly, the appeals chamber holds that the trial chamber applied amended rule 68 of the rules retroactively to the detriment of the accused. The appeals chamber notes that the prior recorded testimony admitted into evidence under amended rule 68 in the present case would not have been admissible under former rule 68 of the rules. The appeals chamber considers that the prior recorded testimony was admitted without any proper opportunity for the accused to cross-examine the witness. The appeals chamber notes that some witness testified in court and recanted the content of the prior recorded testimony. In these circumstances, even if the accused had an opportunity to question the witness because they appeared before the court, the appeals chamber considers that in the absence of the prosecutor eliciting incriminating evidence from the witness and examination chief, such questioning does not amount to a meaningful examination. Alluding to statements containing evidence that was later recanted, one of the judges of the appeals chamber went on to say, It follows that evidence was admitted for the truth of its contents and circumstances in which those witnesses denied the allegation made and that evidence and meaningful cross-examination was not possible. In applying the amended rule, the trial chamber committed legal errors in interpreting the notion of detriment too narrowly at finding that the rule had not been applied retroactively and in finding that this had not been detrimental to the accused. Legal experts say the International Criminal Court's appeals chamber's decision to reject recanted evidence has weakened the prosecution's case against Ruto and Sang. The experts assert that there is no further opportunity of appeal at the ICC once the appeals chamber has made a decision. Already, the prosecution's options to further bolster its case have virtually diminished after Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda notified the court at The Hague in the Netherlands that she had closed her case against William Ruto and the journalist Joshua Arapsang. What remains now? that may lead to Kenya's deputy president and journalist Joshua Arab Sang's acquittal is for the trial court to rule that they have no case to answer. The court has, however, not set a date for its ruling on the motion of no case to answer.
William Ruto, Kenya's deputy president, and his co-defendant vernacular radio talk show host Joshua Arapsang have consistently denied orchestrating the human atrocities that were triggered by the 2007 disputed presidential election. Ruto has repeatedly predicted that it is only a matter of time that charges against him are dropped. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. An all-female United Nations Indian police unit left leaving Liberia over the weekend after nine years of helping to stabilize the country. It was the first force of its kind in the history of the United Nations peacekeeping operations. A civil war in the country that began in the late 1989 has claimed the lives of over 150,000 people, mostly civilians. Daniel Dickinson has the story. 103 police officers from India have been packing their bags and are returning home after a year of service in Liberia in West Africa. Since 2007, there have been nine rotations of these units from India. During a medal ceremony in honor of the female officers, UN police advisor Stefan Feller praised them for their sacrifices not only during the war but also during the recent health emergency caused by the Ebola virus. You have come here leaving behind your families, your loved ones, some of you, even your children, in order to offer your services for a nation that's too far away from, from your country but a nation that is in distress and in need of support and help from the international community. That is the highest manifestation of your humanism. The additional element of your pride is that you came at a time with many people, including some Liberians, were leaving the country. There was a major scourge, there was a major threat of spread of a disease. According to the UN, India has given unequivocal support to the notion of women in peace and security. It's currently the fourth largest police contributing country, with just over 1,000 police officers worldwide. It's also the third largest contributor of female police officers, with 115, just behind Bangladesh and Nepal. Colonel Madhubala Bala says her all-female police unit has served as a role model for the local girls and that the effect on Liberian women has been quite significant. India is the only country that has contributed with female-formed police units for consolidation of peace in Liberia and gender equality in peacekeeping in the world as a whole. Empowerment of women enhances their ability and is necessary for development in any country. Women are proving themselves as one of the greatest assets in our developing society. A UN Security Council resolution recognizing that armed conflicts often affect women and girls more severely called for an increase in the number of women in peace missions. But the responsibility to recruit women at the country level lies with member states. Claire Hutchinson is a gender advisor for the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations. What is important from this is that deploying women into an area that wouldn't necessarily be seen as a female area. So the idea that we'd have women in the military or the police uh, is, is opening the doors 
for a lot of women. And we know from, uh, from the results of, of having women in peacekeeping um, as police that they engage with the community in a very different way and that they are seen as role modelling in terms of the community. So far, the UN has helped train over 555 police women in five countries. The tour of duty for these Indian officers at the medal ceremony is over. Women from other countries will no doubt follow in their footsteps in other UN missions. Daniel Dickinson, United Nations. This year's selection process for the next United Nations Secretary-General is the most transparent and open that there has ever been. As according to Dan Thomas, the spokesperson for the President of the 70th Session of the United Nations General Assembly, Morgens Liketov. The assembly, composed of all 193 member states, is the main deliberative, policy-making and representative organ of the United Nations. The current Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon is standing down at the end of the year. In the past, the discussions surrounding the candidates and the final vote have been behind closed doors. Thomas elaborates. Well, so far we've got five candidates, uh, two women and three men. All of them have been proposed by uh, governments from Eastern Europe, although the letter calling for candidates and for nominations doesn't uh, specifically say that they have to come from that region. So are we waiting for more candidates? Is that what you mean? Yes, it's an open call for nominations. So far we've got five. We're expecting another one uh, probably next week from uh, also a European country, although not an Eastern European country. And uh, we expect several more candidates to come forward as the process uh, continues. So what specifically is the role of the General Assembly? Working with the Security Council, the General Assembly will basically be involved in identifying candidates, calling for the nominations, and then hopefully giving member states an opportunity to actually have a dialogue with those candidates, an interview, if you like, in the General Assembly uh, for those candidates to present themselves and their ideas and to answer questions from member states and maybe even stakeholders as well. The President of the General Assembly has pledged to be open and transparent about this process. Already having the candidates up on the webpage is a first, I think, in the history of the UN. What other parts of the process are going to be transparent and open? This is the most open and transparent process in terms of selecting the Secretary General of the United Nations that there has ever been. And the President of the General Assembly uh, is absolutely determined to make it as open and transparent as possible. Uh, we've created a website, on uh, a web page on his website, where we've put the candidates that have been nominated. We've been communicating on Twitter. Every time a new candidate goes up, you'll find the, uh, even the CVs of the candidates on that website. We're also hoping to uh, open up uh, questions to civil society and stakeholders so that they too can join member states in asking these candidates questions. That's another way of opening it up so that the whole world can really uh, see this process, see who the candidates are, hopefully ask their questions, and then see how they react. So uh, uh, everyone will have an opinion on who the best Secretary General is and which the candidates are. There's also worth noting that uh, there's been a large call around the world, a resounding call for the Secretary-General to be a woman next time. And so the, the letter from the Security Council President and the General Assembly President actually encourages member states to uh, 
to present women uh, as candidates. And that was Dan Thomas, a spokesperson for the president of the 70th session of the UN General Assembly, Morgan's Liketoft, speaking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, representatives from Libya's rival factions meeting in Morocco propose a new unity government. Central African Republicans vote to elect a new president in a run-off contest between two former prime ministers, Ansei Dulagale and Faustin Toadora. And the body of a man has been found stashed in the storeway of a United States cargo plane at Harare International Airport in Zimbabwe. Those are the stories making headlines. Abari, etise, mache, mingabo, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Another collapse has occurred at South Africa's Lily Gold Mine on Sunday afternoon. Additional mine engineers have arrived at the Lily Gold Mine between Lowe's Creek and Babbitton to conduct assessments at the mine. This after another collapse at the mine which forced rescue teams to temporarily suspend search and rescue efforts for the three mine workers trapped underground. They are were trapped when a container serving as a lamp room collapsed into a large sinkhole at the mine shaft a week ago. Vusi Twala has more. Lost Creek is a rural small village located at the border of Umchindi local municipality in Babaton and the Nkomazi local municipality. The only sources of employment in this mountainous area are mining and farming. Over a thousand locals are employed at Lily Gold Mine. The second collapse of the mine compelled the rescue teams to suspend the operations due to safety reasons. The second collapse occurred when rescuers were closer to the missing container and even heard some sounds. Now the engineers need to make an assessment of the mine before the resumption of the rescue efforts. But another collapse forced the families of the missing workers who have been staying at the mine to leave. A family member, Brighton Kuna, witnessed the collapse on Sunday afternoon. Not safety because it started shaking and uh, the old ground was not in proper way. So we decided to leave and they said we must leave and go to pray from the gate because when we're praying there, the environment is not looking sharp. It's still going down. A resident to Dukosa says Lily Gold Mine has been the main source of employment in this rural village. She says the mine accident has left the entire community worried about their future. When a family member is employed, it's a great... It's helpful to the families involved because if a father or a mother works, they bring something to the home. 
So it's a it's in much it's great important for the community here that there is the the work there. So we pray and we pray so much that everything will come back to order. Eighty seven mine workers were underground when the container disappeared with the three workers on Friday a week ago. All these workers were saved with minor injuries. They were sent to various hospitals and discharged on the same day. But the three staff members doing duties in the lamp room disappeared into a large sinkhole about 100 meters wide and 120 meters deep. Mine management has promised the compensation of 50,000 rand for all the survivors. The three missing workers or their families will receive 200,000 rand. Mine worker Tumisan Mbiba says the incident has left them shocked. In a big hole, it's up and down, and all that, all that thing that swallowed the, the soil swallowed the, 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 the whole containers. I think so. Also, also, all the people. Yes. Yeah, I, I cannot I say that. I feel, I'm feeling scared to come to work, but there's nothing else I can do. I must come to work because it's, it's, it's the man that I want to see. President Jacob Zuma has appointed a team of three ministers to assist the families of the missing workers. They are Minister for Social Development, Batabile Lamini, Minister in the Presidency, Susan Shabangu, and the Minister for the Department of Mineral Resources, Msebenzi Zwane. Zwane says government working with the private sector will ensure that the missing mine workers are found. Zwane also dismissed the allegations that the mine will never reopen. Operations have been temporarily suspended. We will be able to help the mine to open, reopen, and people be able to get to the, back to their jobs once we are sure that the, everybody is safe. So at this point in time, we can't say how long is the mine going to be closed, but we are working together with uh, the mine itself to ensure that whatever needs to uh, take place is done according to our requirements, and it's only thereafter that will consider opening the mine. Rescue teams are expected to resume work as soon as possible. Amvusi Twala at Lily Gold Mine in Pumalanga. At a time when Zimbabwe is facing an acute grain shortage in rural areas due to drought, logistical challenges and logistical challenges, the sole grain parastatal has been hit by strikes. A strike action started a week ago over unpaid salaries for two years, threatening to cripple the nation's grain restocking exercise. Simon Muchema has more. Zimbabwe's grain distribution exercise faces serious challenges following some week-long protests by former and current workers over unpaid wages. Hundreds of grain marketing board workers thronged the capital last week, demanding their unpaid salary arrears of nearly two years. The protests are taking place at a time when Zimbabwean authorities have declared a state of emergence and requested for nearly 1.2 billion U.S. dollars for grain imports. At least 1.2 million Zimbabweans are in urgent need of food assistance in the southern parts of the country hit by severe grain shortages due to drought. Meanwhile, the current protests in the capital are feared could affect the grain distribution exercise currently underway. Workers who included women with children braved the cold and rainy weather 
in protests against unpaid wages in Harare. Channel Africa caught up with the striking former and current workers on a rainy day in Harare and the workers' union president Stephen Machaya had this to say. We are gathered here as former employees of GMB who were dismissed the last year in August following the Supreme Court ruling which was passed on the 15th of July which allowed employers to terminate employees' contracts on three months' notice. But however, that was superseded by the amendment that was done to the labor laws. But however, GMB has not corrected that and has not paid us our, our terminal benefits. Moreover, when our contracts were terminated, GMB was owing us over 10 months' salaries. They have not paid out those salary arrears. Even the three months' notice, they have not paid that. Machaya Ede. Prior to this exercise of the terminating contracts through three months' notice, GMB was going through a right-sizing exercise, and they started on a voluntary retrenchment, and they were paying out a certain package for voluntary retrenchment for the applicants who had volunteered to go. So it was an ongoing exercise and they were about to embark on composer retrenchment in, uh, as an exercise to right-size their organization. But now, in the manner in which our contracts were terminated now is the one we are also questioning because GMB had its own program, which was ongoing. Masimba Tongo, a member of the middle manager, complained GMB delayed settling salary arrears as well as terminal benefits for some workers, hence the protest. What you are saying, we are asking, we are saying to the employer, we are here to, to claim our salary arrears. Just as you know that naturally, even according to the to natural laws, if someone offered you, if you to somebody, after you have completed your whatever task, you'll be expecting to be paid. They're not to be paid only, but to be paid in time. Of course, the organization is setting financial challenges, but uh, as the former employees of GMB, we strongly believe that uh, our organization has the capacity to, to clear what the salary areas they owe us. Another former employee complained of the harsh treatment in the hands of the GMB authorities who ignored them despite heavy rains in Harare. Ah, so far, Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa, Blantyre. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Janowel Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Mwaigikonyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The office of the UN envoy for the Great Lakes region has called on investors to take advantage of various investment opportunities in the region. The call comes as the DRC prepares to host an international conference on investing in the Great Lakes region's private sector. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. 
The two-day conference to be held here in Kinshasa from February 24th to February 25th will bring together delegates from different countries of the world. Participants expected here include heads of states and government officials, representatives of the region's strong companies, investors from various countries, economic and development-related project funders and more. The Office of the Special Envoy of the UN Secretary General for the Great Lakes Region has described the upcoming conference as a key strategy in peace, security and cooperation framework of the DRC and the whole region. Alan Mukungu is the Office Senior Economic Officer. This upcoming conference aims to pacify the region, resolve the conflicts that have been reigning for the last 20 or so years, and provide people with the clear peace dividends that change their lives. So it is meant to be a transformative part of that peace, security, and cooperation framework. The choice of DRC came through a very selective process. It was a process where a number of countries actually bidded to host the conference, and a procedure was set in place. DRC provided the clearest and uh, formal request with uh, very clear justifications of why the conference should be in the DRC. On the other hand, it would have been in another countries. But the other countries, recognizing the centrality of DRC, accepted that the conference should be in the DRC. The objectives of the conference really are to try and mobilize investments in some of the regional integrating projects. Those are indeed the projects participants said the conference to be held here in Kinshasa will be looking at in order for the thousands of investors who will be attending to know what are the ones they would be interested in. Once more, the senior economic officer in the office of the special envoy of the United Nations Secretary General for the Great Lakes Region explains. Alan Mukungu. The projects include agriculture, where we want to grow value chains across borders, projects in energy, where we want to increase the energy production capacity of the region, projects in ICT, where, as you know, ICT is very central. We want people to be able to communicate, but also to, be, to use ICT to integrate into the global economy, projects in finance, the financial system is central for the development of the region, and as such, we want to find inclusive ways where everybody will be included in the formal financial system, projects in uh, infrastructure. I talk of infrastructure and people will know what exactly the role it can play in terms of building the productive capacity of the region, but also facilitating trade within the region. Tourism, the Great Lakes region has got vast tourism potential, natural resources that could be exploited in different ways, including from the touristic potential. You have uh, mining, natural resources again. The Great Lakes region is home to vast deposits of minerals, significant proportions of what deposits of minerals is found in the Great Lakes region. These are key sectors we thought would be, if they attracted enough investment, would be transformative and also will help the peace process, they build confidence and help the peace processes, whatever political processes are going on for the people of uh, the Great Lakes region to enjoy shared prosperity. The upcoming conference is the first meeting of the kind. It's co-organized by both the Office of the Special Envoy of the UN Secretary General for the Great Lakes Region and the Office of the Executive Secretary of the International Conference of the Great Lakes Region with the support of the Government of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. 
Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehuku. Thanks, Lulu. South Africa's Mine Workers Union, AMCU, says it's concerned about the situation at the Lili Gold Mine in Mpumalanga province. Three mine staff workers are still trapped underground after a rockfall 10 days ago. The union says they are waiting for new technology and experts to arrive at the mine to assess the situation. AMCU's spokesperson, Manzini Zungu. The geologist that they'll be assessing uh, the area uh, so that uh, we can continue to try and reach the people that have been trapped. It is a worrying situation, one, that for so many days when we had hoped that uh, we will find those three miners alive where there was hope of life, and up until now we have not reached them because of the situation of the mine itself. At this point in time, there is no time to point fingers at anyone. We just want to help those people who are underground to come to surface. Media moguls of the Gupta family in South Africa says anybody should be free to compete fairly for any business. The Tegeta Exploration and Resources Company says it's seeking further opportunities after being cleared by regulators to acquire Glencore's optimum coal mine. Opposition parties have criticized Mines Minister Musibin Zizwane for meeting with Glencore's CEO Ivan Glasenberg in Switzerland, which they say benefited President Jacob Zuma's son and the Gupta family. The Guptas say they have received no assistance from the minister in the closure of the deal. The Office of the United Nations Envoy for the Great Lakes region has called on investors to take advantage of various investment opportunities in the region. The call comes as DRC prepares to host an international conference on investing in the Great Lakes region's private sector. John Newell Bomweza reports from the capital, Kinshasa. The two-day conference to be held here in Kinshasa from February 24th to February 25th will bring together delegates from different countries of the world. Egypt's central bank has injected over 14 billion US dollars into local banks over the past three months to facilitate import activity. Egypt has been facing an acute dollar shortage that has hampered import activity. The government has in recent months applied various measures from import restrictions to higher tariffs. Kenya's shilling is holding steady and traders say they expect to get it firmer due to foreign currency inflows. At an official close of trade on Friday, commercial banks quoted the shilling at strong gains. A senior trader at one commercial bank says the market is very quiet. The U.S. dollar trades at 15.85 in South Africa, 10.96 in Botswana, 11.34 in Zambia. 6.8 British pound, 8.8 euro. Gold $1,221, platinum $942 an ounce, brand crude oil $33.18 a barrel. Channel Africa's Economic Update. My name is Tabiso Lohoku.
Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Tammy Kluza. Thanks for joining us. Good morning once again. Let's start with football. Where South African heavyweights Kaiser Chiefs kicked off their 2016 CAF Champions League campaign in style with a resounding 4-0 away victory at Como's Vulcan Club on Sunday in the first leg of their preliminary round time. Bidvest first round to a 3-0 victory over Light Stars in their Confederations Cup match at the Stade Diamite in Seychelles on Saturday. Vets did come into the game with experience in the competition as they also competed in the Confederations Cup last season. Light Stars, in contrast, were taking part in the cup competition for the first time. Meanwhile, APSA Premiership runaway log leaders Mamelodi Sundowns were brought down to earth by Zimbabwean side Chicken Inn in Bulawayo. Sundowns were beaten 1-0 in the preliminary round first leg clash with the second leg to be played in South Africa in two weeks' time. And in another game involving a South African club, Ice Cape Town hold the advantage going to the second leg of the CAF Confederations Cup time after beating Sagrada Esperanza of Angola by two goals to one. In local football, Stuart Baxter registered his first win as Supersport United mentor and the third time of trying, trumping to an rivals University of Pretoria by two goals to nil in an Asa Premiership clash at the Lucas Moriba Stadium on Sunday. And a late goal from Rulani Manzini helped Chippo United defeat Bloemfontein Celtic in a PSL fixture in Bloemfontein on Sunday. Mohamed Ali has more. A great strike from the edge of the penalty area by substitute Rolani Manzini in the first minute of stoppage time led Chippa United to a narrow 1-0 win over Bloemfontein Celtic at the Petrus Malamela Stadium. Manzini had only been on the pitch for five minutes when he made use of the space he was allowed by the Celtic defence to smash the ball into the right-hand corner of Patrick Tinium's net to score Chippa's first ever league goal in three visits to Bloemfontein. Celtic certainly had their chances. Dapelo Morena in the first half struck a spectacular scissors kick that went narrowly over the crossbar while Musa Niatama also forced a good save from Chipper United goalkeeper Daniel Akpe late in the second half. The win consolidates Chipper's sixth place on the log, while Celtic dropped down to 11th. In athletics, the Kenyan government has confirmed that it has made elaborate decision to ensure that the country's anti-doping agency ADAC, formed recently, is going to meet the standards set and timelines drawn by a world anti-doping agency, WADA. Francis Muteki reports. The Deputy President of the Republic of Kenya, William Ruto, says the Anti-Doping Agency of Kenya is well on course to becoming a universal model whose ultimate goal will be to ensure Kenya keeps its honorary degree in the world of sports as well as completely eliminating the bad seed growing among clean athletes. The ATAC office led by the recently appointed Chief Executive Officer James Waweru have been given two months within which to fulfill all horizons of global standards if Kenya is to safeguard its ticket for the upcoming Olympic Games in Rio. The minister in charge, Hassan Wario, says that all necessary legislations will be well in place and in time to avoid any further disclaimer from WADA. And as your Ministry, Your Excellency, we are fully dedicated to ensuring that all the policies uh, and all the legislations are in place, especially in anti-doping. I want to thank you, Your Excellency, for leading from the front on the issue of fighting doping in the sporting sector. And that is why we have formed the Anti-Doping Agency of Kenya, which now has a new CEO who is somebody 
who, who knows the sector very well because he was the sports secretary before. And sky is the limit for Kenya sports. And finally in golf, South African Charles Schwarzel was far too strong for his fellow competitors, winning the Tony Open by massive eight shots in the Tony Open at the Pretoria Country Club on Sunday. Michael Christmas has more. The former Masters champion signed for a final round of 63 and a total of 16 under par, with Denmark's Jeff Winther taking second place on eight under after a 64. This is Schwarzel's second European Tour victory this season following his win in November's Alfred Daniel Championship, which forms part of the Tour's 2016 season. In 2012, Schwarzel won the Alfred Daniel Championship by 12 strokes, and the week before that he won the Thailand Golf Championship by 11 strokes. That was achieved by the kind of putting he displayed in the final round, and which he'd been searching for in the previous three rounds here. I was hoping, uh, that's what I was hoping for the whole, the first three rounds, you know, the first three rounds gave myself so many chances and uh, if I had the stroke I had today it would have been probably my best tournament ever but uh, um, you know we just worked hard the whole week on it and I had a good feeling. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, protesters in Burundi accuse Rwanda of backing rebels and South Sudan's rebel league. Riek Macha accepts appointment as vice president. It wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Pumuto Mopulane, technical producers Fiso Mashiko and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Zahara featuring Robbie Malinga with a song titled Bengi Rongo. <laughs>